So chapter 31, verse 1. Yahweh spoke to Moses, exact vengeance on the Israelites, on the Midianites, and after that you will be gathered to your people. So Moses spoke to the people, arm the men from among you to make war, to attack the Midianites, and to execute Yahweh's vengeance on Midian. You must send to the battle a thousand men from every tribe throughout all the tribes of Israel. So a thousand from every tribe, 12,000 armed for battle, and all were provided, provided out of the thousands of Israel. Now this section is concerned with the aftermath of that Midianite and Moabite seduction, but is not actually interested in the battle. We don't really get any details about the battle at all. I remember a few weeks ago I said that one of the reasons the Bible is very silent on a lot of details in battles is because details are only interesting if the battle's epic. And it's only epic if the enemy is formidable. And when Yahweh is with you, there is no enemy that's formidable. No enemy that really stands up against you, presents a challenge or a threat. Um, but the other reason specifically that God is not interested in the battle because he's more interested in the spoils and the cleansings after the battle because they're literally weeks away from going into total conquest, which will be covered in the book of Joshua. Remember, touching dead bodies and killing, that defiles you. I mean, the reality is, this is what's so interesting, killing is wrong. And touching dead bodies and that blood is defiling. Yet at the same time, God is going to command them to do this because this is who he's going to choose to execute his wrath and his judgment. So, but the reality is once you get done serving God in that capacity, you're defiled. You're unclean. You're not allowed into the tabernacle and to worship and serving him. And this is what's so interesting. is a, a very interesting theme that God can command you to do things that will defile you, that will kind of exclude you from his presence and his worship for a certain amount of time until you're cleansed again. And there's, in a sense, it's like we live in a fallen world. And there are things that Yahweh will do that he would have never had to do in a perfect world. And, and I don't mean sin or do evil and that kind of stuff. We're not going there. But there's a sense where Yahweh chooses to roll up his sleeves, so to speak, and get dirty in order to deal with the sin. He could just completely kick us to the curb and go off somewhere else in another dimension and leave us to our own devices or just wipe us all out or just stop thinking about us and we would cease to exist probably. But the reality is he chooses to roll up his sleeves, get into the filth with us, ultimately demonstrated in Jesus. I mean, you really think about it. Jesus is God. And by taking sin upon himself and dying, he is defiling himself. He defiles himself for our sake. And there's a certain sense where God then allows this to happen and then commands his people to defile themselves because this is what it means to live in a fallen world. And even executing righteousness sometimes requires getting dirty. Let me also say this in an application kind of a sense. You really have no right to determine when it's okay and how dirty it's okay for you to get when dealing with sin. Um, this can only be done through the Holy Spirit. But there are times where the Holy Spirit is going to call you into circumstances that may defile you. And I don't mean like it's okay for you to sin and, and, and violate the law and, and be ungodly and be unrighteous. 
but in this needing cleansing or difficult issues. And I don't really have any good examples right now because all I can give you is the biblical examples at the top of my head. But they are able to do this and allowed to do this only because Yahweh has specifically said, go to war. And they must obey Yahweh, but that obedience will defile them. And so this is interested in that. And that's going to be a very constant theme throughout the book of Joshua. What do you do when God has commanded you to go into war, and war is difficult, and we know about post-traumatic stress syndrome and all that kind of stuff now, and they're going to be dealing with all that, and yet God has commanded them to do that, yet God has also given them means to, to cleanse themselves from it, and that complicated issue. And it's very easy to just say, oh, God was wrong in doing all that, or, oh, he's God, he can do it all. But when you get down to the details and the practicalness, it gets really messy really quickly and very complicated very quickly And because life is complicated. And the Bible doesn't try to sugarcoat or water down anything for your sake. It just puts it out there and requires you to dive in and struggle with it and figure it out. And that's one of the beauties and one of the reasons I'm like so in love with the Word of God is it is like... I abhor sugarcoating things. You're going to ask any of my students, maybe you figured it out by now, but I tell them how it is, like straight out of the bat, like freshmen, everybody, this is the way the world works, this is what the Bible means, and, and I appreciate that about the Bible, is it just, this is what it is, deal with it. And you're going to spend your entire life trying to chew on this and figure it out, and all of its grayness, all of its complexities, all of its struggles. And it's simple enough that my first grader can figure it out and fall in love with God, but complicated enough that there's this a lifetime journey involved, and, and even in eternity. And there will be no end to figuring out God even in all eternity. So that's the reality here. So Moses is more interested in the defilement and the spoils. But at the same time, there is a sense that Midian has to be punished. That's a definite focus here as well. Midian has to be punished. Moses sent them to war, 1,000 from every tribe, with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the priest, who was in charge of the holy articles and the signal trumpets. They fought against the Midianites as Yahweh commanded Moses, and they killed every male. They killed the kings of Midian in addition to those slain, Evai, Rechem, Zer, Hur, Reba, five Midianite kings. They also killed Bela'am, son of Baor, with the sword. Now, once again, that Balaam's death shows that he was not a godly prophet. Now, here's what's interesting. It does not say that Joshua led the battle. It said that Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, who's going to be the new high priest, when, or who is the new high priest because of Aaron's death, is the leader in the battle. There really are no cases in the First Testament where the priests lead the battle. The one exception is Jericho. But... This shows that this truly is holy war. That this truly is an exacting of justice upon the Midianites. The Midianites attacked them spiritually through temple prostitutes. And Yahweh is um, enacting vengeance against them priestly, spiritually, through holy war for their sins. And so the same Phineas that begins this holy war, so to speak with the killing of Zimri and Cosby, 
is the one who also leads them into battle in this kind of a sense. Now, there's nothing that says that he's killing people because the priests aren't allowed to kill people in battle. They're only allowed to kill people in protection of the tabernacle. But there is a sense that he is the leader. He is out there. He is the one guiding them and commanding them. And they're obedient. That's all the details. Five kings die in Balaam, or Balaam. Verse 9, the Israelites took the women of the Midianite camps along with their little ones and took all their herds, all their flocks, and all their goods as plunder. And they burned all their um, towns where they lived and all their encampments. And they took all the plunder and all the spoils, both people and animals. And they brought the captives and the spoils and the plunder to Moses, to Eleazar the priests, and to the Israelite community, to the camp on the plains of Moab along the Jordan River, across from Jericho. Moses, Eleazar the priests, and all the leaders of the company went out to meet them outside the camp. Now, Deuteronomy is going to go on and say that you are allowed, I mean, other books have too, but Deuteronomy is specifically going to spell it out, that you are allowed to take enemy from other nations as your slaves. Now, remember, we already talked about slavery is completely different in the Israelite camp and in the entire ancient world compared to what our history is. But you are allowed to take the women and children as slaves. Now, that seems like, wow, that's kind of messed up. Isn't that like kidnapping that God approves of that? Um, and I don't have a really good answer. This is one of those things that's just like scholars, we've kind of done our best, but at the same time, there's still a lot of things. And we'll talk about this in a lot more detail when we get to Joshua. We're really going to dive in deep into the how could God allow for all this killing and stuff when we get to the book of Joshua, because that's really where the heart of it is. Um, but until then, part of it is just where they live in a culture where women's survival really truly is completely dependent upon males. And I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that is what it is. And in a culture without a husband, a brother, or a father, their survival for a woman is incredibly difficult. And the survival of children is incredibly difficult. I mean, over and over, the widow with the sons is seen as like near death, practical, hardly can survive when we get to these stories over and over again. And so the reality is when you've just killed every single male, there really is no survival for these women. There is no survival with these men and these children, sorry. And there's no way their gods are going to take care of them. The way that people in the ancient worldview is if your husband dies and the gods are against you and I won't touch you with a 10-foot pole, that's kind of an exaggeration extreme, but kind of not. And so the reality is part of the slavery here is a means of taking care of these people. That a life in slavery to the chosen people of God who are under the Mosaic Covenant is way better than being on their own in a world where without men survival is practically impossible. On top of that, they're bringing the women and children into hopefully a culture that is following God and is being obedient, which means the children are going to be influenced. And if anybody's ever been around long enough, it is primarily the children that change things. Um, no offense, but adults' minds and lives are hard to change. And, and I'm up there too now, so <laughs> they're hard to change. But many, many people... When you find about, out about conversions and family, it's so interesting that it usually happens through the children. It's the children that change the parents' ways of thinking and change their lives and that kind of stuff. And so there's a sense where if you want to influence this culture, 
then taking the women and children into your culture is one of the best ways to do it. So part of it is, yes, these are foreign people who should have probably died for their sins, and by the grace of God they're not, they're only being taken as slaves. But part of it too is that this is a means of providing for them in a culture where they can't survive. And another part of it is if Israel's truly doing what they're supposed to be doing in obedience to the law, there's an incredible opportunity for influence in these people's lives where they'll become a part of the covenant community and eventually become the chosen people themselves. Once again, it's so easy to look back at this with our own modern-day American and say, oh my gosh, God is so jacked up, not realizing that the world was so different back then. And in a practical sense, is this God's ideal? No. Half the things that Yahweh commands are not his ideal in a fallen world. But is it what is he able to bring good out of it? Is there benefits to it? Is he still trying to take care of people? Yes. That's important for you to understand. So they take these women and children as slaves. Oh, and the other point is, too, slavery is way different than it was today. So those are important facts to remember as you go through these stories. Some of the women and children taken, but there's also women who are also killed. And what is the distinction between the women who are taken and the women who are killed? (laughs) The virgins were scared. Yes, and the ones who were not were the Midianite prostitutes. In this case, the women are especially marked for destruction because they're the ones who actually came in and sexually seduced everybody. But the virgins, obviously they're not guilty of that crime because they're virgins, they're spared. And so this is one of the very few places where we see that now, Canaanites are different, and we'll talk about that when we get to Joshua, but in non-Canaanite people, people who are not on the list for destruction, um, they're, they're, the women are usually never taken in battle. They're never, I mean, killed. But this is the exception. And remember, too, that whole idea that women and children are innocent and men are not, that's pretty much new since the 1950s. Pre-1950s, no one would ever really have that thought or view. Um, maybe a little bit, but in the ancient world, there's really, I mean, if you really are honest, <laughs> there's really no difference between men and women when it comes to evilness and their capabilities and, and what they're truly guilty of. And, and that's a whole other issue, why we have that concept, but it's a whole other class. So the whole point is God is commanding this. They're then to bring the things to the camp. And they are to go to the tabernacle and bring the spoils of this to the tabernacle. And then they are to cleanse themselves for seven days, showing that this really truly is defiling you. Even though you've obeyed the command of God, and even though you did what he wanted them to do, you're still defiled, and you still have to cleanse yourself. Then they are to pay a tithe. So first the Israelites were to pay a tithe to the priests and to the Levites, And after that, the spoils were to divide um, equally among the soldiers who had fought all the people who had not fought. No special privileges were given to the soldiers, for they served the greater community, not themselves. So here's the thing. So what's interesting, it's kind of like, well, first of all, they pay a tithe because God requires your tithe and your first fruits of everything. The first fruits of your crops, the first fruits of the spoils of war. 
that tithe goes to God. So God is teaching them that even if this isn't like your job, this isn't your crops, this isn't like detailed in Leviticus, you still pay a tithe from your spoils. All right, so this would totally answer the question, not that I'm approving of this, but if you won the lottery, yes, you tithe from the lottery. Okay, this even says that if somebody gives you a gift to help t- pay, take care of something, you are to tithe that gift. There's a sense that everything that comes in, whether you earned it, worked for it, part of your job, or a gift, you tithe it. Now, the interesting question is, do you tithe Christmas gifts? Hmm. But remember, this is all about love for God. This isn't about rules. This isn't about regulations. This is about acknowledging that God has given this to you. You want to thank him for him, and you're trusting for other things. I actually know a family that every Christmas, the first present they open up, they have to take that to like some orphanage or something. The kids do. And, and they're like, they said the first year they were open, they were like, please don't let it be a good thing. Please let it be the socks from Grandma. Please let it be from the socks from Grandma. But they said, <laughs> no offense. Um, I think socks from Grandma are great, but kids don't always think those are prideful. Except my kids, they think everything is awesome. They're like, socks! But I know they'll outgrow that soon. But they said, like, that first year they didn't want to do it, but then, like, the year after that, they actually got really excited about it. Because when they actually went there and saw kids that were more disadvantaged they are, and saw that they had a greater sense of joy getting this thing, because they don't get tons of gifts every year like everybody else, that like changed those kids so much that they looked forward to it the next year. And they actually got to the point where they were actually, if they opened up a gift that wasn't that great, they would pick something better. They wouldn't get like that, the Red Ryder BB gun they've been looking forward to their entire life, um, or the favorite G.I. Joe or whatever, but I thought that was such an interesting practice to really start teaching tithing in a really face-to-face kind of experiential way that this really is about taking care of other people and not just doing it because I have to do it. And there is a sense that God says, look, everything goes to God. Everything goes to God first and foremost. And then you can take yours. And then everything is divided among everybody, whether they fought in the battle. Because this isn't about individuals. There is no sense like, that's not fair. They didn't think that way. Because this is community-oriented, a way that we don't understand in America. And it's kind of like everybody getting the Super Bowl ring, even though most of them sat on the bench. And it's that kind of concept. I guess it's not quite the same when everybody gets the ring. It's not like you have to take the ring and split it up (laughs) among everybody. That would maybe, they would complain a little bit more about that. But this is what God is teaching them. This is a holy war about purifying things and bringing justice. This isn't about land grabbing or vengeance. That, two, this is about God and serving him and acknowledging that he's taking care of you and he's blessed you, and therefore you tithe to him to acknowledge that and trust that you'll be there. Three, that no matter what you're doing, if anything defiles you, even if it comes from God, you're to cleanse yourself because it's about being right with God no matter whether you had to get your hands dirty in obedience to God or whether your hands never got dirty in obedience to God. And fourth, this is about the community. It's about taking care of the community. There is no sense that that's not fair. There is no sense that I worked my rear end off. I deserve this. It's about this is the community. And when the community begins to suffer, the individuals suffer. And it's one thing that we, most people in America, have not learned that one, despite all the things we're going through. There is a selfishness to taking care of the community, so to speak. 
Not, not that I'm saying that that should be your motivation, um, but you do suffer as an individual when the community is not taken care of. Those are the commands. And so now Midian has been paid for their sins and justice. So, Corey, why does uh, God say here specifically for them to kill the boys? At least it does in my Bible. Is that, is that? First, boys is very relative. Okay. Probably should be more like young men or just the little ones. What exactly age that means, that's one of those questions. Part of it, too, is you have to realize that there is no such thing as children being innocent. I can give a modern-day example. We're seeing boys and girls commit atrocities, even in America, horrible crimes. On a massive scale, not really, okay? But I've read news clippings of, like, six years old strangling their sisters and taking joy in it. And not just because they don't even comprehend what they're doing, but they're doing it. 11-year-olds shooting other people. We go to school shootings and all that kind of stuff. There is a sense that when you feed off of the culture and you have no parents balancing that out or protecting you from it, a child can be just as evil as any adult. Put that child in a culture where everybody is like that. Put that child in a culture where your mom is a temple prostitute. (laughs) Put that in a culture where your father is sacrificing his children to the gods. When a kid grows up in an abusive family with pornography and drugs and alcohol, as sad as it is, that kid is going to be just like the father no matter how young he is. And so the reality is part of it is when children are stamped with that kind of stuff at such a young age, it's almost impossible to get that out. Now, do I believe in the power of God to be able to change anybody at any moment, no matter how bad they are? Yes. But when you're bringing like hundreds of these boys that grew up, grew up in this culture in your camp to, it's a little different story. And so part of it is just evil is evil is evil, no matter what age you're at. And there's, they are influenced by their families. Remember, and none, none of this was hidden. None of them were sheltered. When your parents are calling, this isn't even in America today, most parents will do things in secret because most people in the culture see that not good. Now, that's changing. But in that culture, they declared this stuff righteous. They declared this stuff righteous, and it was publicly. And that's one of the hardest things for us to comprehend is this idea of how an entire culture, men, women, and children, are not considered innocent. They're not considered innocents. And, I, and, and, and like I said, thankfully we live in a culture where that is not universal. But sadly, I can show you examples of kids who are not innocent because of the, the, the environment they were raised in. And so think of that on a massive population level.